The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. If you will be seated, please, and turn in your copies of God's Word to have it available to you. Turn to that wonderful letter that is written to a presbytery of seven churches in Asia Minor, and that's the book of Revelation. Revelation and turn, if you would, in the book of Revelation to chapter 3. Chapter 3 in the book of the Apocalypse. And uh, I'm, I'm sorry, chapter 2. Chapter 2. So, so thanks for your patience in working through this one sermon divided into two parts. The seven marks of progressive Christianity. I've already done a sermon that the marks of progressive Christianity is it shows up in the lives of Christians. But what about when a church has its leadership is committed to the agenda, the theology, and the overall philosophy of ministry that is, pro, uh, that is proposed <clears throat> in contemporary progressive Christianity instead of historic biblical Christianity? what happens. So what I've tried to do tonight is to outline for you seven marks of progressive Christianity in that church. Now, we started it last week, and um, I realized on Saturday and on Sunday that really all I could rightly attempt to get done is a biblical foundation for why these seven marks exist and why they ought to be evaluated as they are evaluated. So let me remind you of the foundation from last week with three passages of Scripture. If you haven't, if you weren't here for the sermon or haven't accessed it on the, accessed it on the website and you want to go back over it, just go to 1 John chapter 4 verses 1 through 6 where we are instructed not to believe every teacher or prophet or preacher, but to examine them and to examine them in two areas, the spirit that drives them and the content of their ministry. Do they as John says, preach Christ incarnate who came to save his people from their sins. Is it Christ exalting? Is it Christ preaching? Is it biblical preaching and teaching that is faithful to Christ? Test it. Examine it. That's why the Bereans were noble-minded. They received the word with eagerness. They were teachable. But they were not uh, blind in their listening. They were discerning. They were discriminating. Not skeptical, not cynical, not critical, but they would discern what was being taught. The Berean would noble-minded receive the word with eagerness while they examined the scriptures to see if these things are so. And then I took you to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount with the illustration that he used to expose false teachers, false shepherds, and false preachers. And that's in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20. He used the illustration of a tree, a diseased tree, because it is diseased in the root and in the trunk or the shoot, will always produce de diseased fruit. So if you come to the fruit, then you know about the trunk and you know about the root. So, and, but the opposite is true. Good trees, good root system, solid trees produce good fruit and bad trees produce bad fruit. So he says, the teachers and preachers, you will know them by their fruits. Now that means you have to have a biblical understanding of what fruit is when you start evaluating. Fruit is not, oh, they got a lot of people listening to them. You remember there was a time that Moses preached at Mount Sinai. He didn't have the big crowd. Baal had the big crowd. So we're not talking about numbers. What we're talking about is content and impact, gospel impact in the lives of men and women 
and the gospel of the kingdom into the earth. If you want to know what fruit is, you could start with the fruit of the Spirit. If you want to know what fruit is from a good tree and a good ministry, from a good church and good leadership, then what you look for is what Jesus said was good fruit in John 17. He says, by this, they, by this you shall know my disciples, that they bear fruit and glorify the Father. In other words, good fruit is a lifestyle that gives glory to God and manifests a personal, robust, vital relationship with Christ as Lord and Savior. That's what the fruit is that you test. And then number three, I took you to 1 Corinthians 3, in which the Apostle Paul says that God has gifted the leaders of a church and when they minister, if they are ministering faithfully, then their, their ministry will be gold, silver, and precious jewels. But if they're ministering falsely, they may be saved, but they've got a false ministry. Well, the ministry gets burned up. Though they are saved, their ministry is burned up. And it is consumed at the day of judgment because it's wood, hay, and stubble. But if they are being faithful to the Lord, then they're building on the foundation. And as they're building on the foundation for Christ, then they begin to produce and minister gold and silver and precious jewels. And the day of judgment just burnishes it and shows it for what it is. So what I thought I would do before I read the text for tonight, whereby we dive into the seven marks, is I want to uh, progressive Christianity when it takes hold of a church. I, I, what I wanted to do is to kind of sum up those three texts from last week with these three statements. What is that telling us? Here's what it's telling us. It's telling us leadership works. Leadership, let me add another word, always works. Good leadership produces good fruit. Bad leadership produces bad fruit. Jesus says, when all's said and done, the pupil becomes like the teacher, the master like the servant. Wisdom is born by her children, the fruit that is there. Leadership works. Now, I didn't say leadership works good. I just said leadership works. Good leadership, good results. The Father's glorified and Christ is exalted. Bad leadership, bad results. Teaching twisted things from the Scripture and leading people astray from Christ. Leadership works. Second thing from the three texts last week. The second thing is, is, um, is that the good leadership has identifiable fruit that honors the one who gives the fruit. It is God-glorifying good fruit. Secondly, bad leadership produces bad fruit, which is detrimental, it is destructive, it is divisive, and it will show up in the overall demeanor and deportment that is taking place within the church. Not that the church is ever perfect, but that there is not, the growth of grace is not seen. There is the demise that is seen in the bad ministry if it is not faithful to the Word of God. Again, you're not looking at numbers. There are times, actually, when God's bringing good fruit that he actually reduces the numbers. Uh, Gideon had to get down to 300 for God to bring forth what he wanted to get done. So God, uh, that's not the point, is the statistical, although statistical growth is certainly recorded uh, in the Scripture. The number three, the third thing is this. Good leadership, let me go back to the title of the series of these eight sermons. We've got one more after this one. Historical biblical Christianity is where we're going to end up in the last sermon. Historical biblical Christianity, if you understand these three texts, is, it is constructive, it is creative, not that it is innovative, but is creative. Things are developed out of it. Creativity faithful to God's Word is produced. They're always trying to find out how to reach people, how to grow people. And it is not only biblically creative, but it is biblically and spirit-empowered constructive. 
We're being built up as living stones. That the temple is growing. The field is bearing fruit. It is creatively biblical. It is biblically creative. It is spirit-empowered constructive. That means that it then produces growth. Spiritual growth, sometimes statistical growth, and, not, and, and functional growth. Christians are growing in their ability to worship. Christians are growing in their ability to share their faith. Christians are growing in their ability to love one another. Followership is learning how to encourage leadership. Leadership is learning how to sacrificially and servant-heartedly guide the followership. There is this, there is uh, spiritual growth in the roots of the life of that congregation. There is functional growth in the conduct of that congregation as it fulfills the great commission and lives the great commandment with a great commitment to Christ as Lord and Savior, head and king of the church. And then there is not only spiritual growth and functional growth in worship and evangelism and discipleship, but normally that would lead to statistical impact. More Christians, more small groups, more ministers, more missionaries, that those things are being done. It is building up. Now, if that's the case, then what if it's false leadership and false teaching? It is no longer constructive. It is destructive. It no longer is productive. It is parasitic. It is no longer developing. It is diminishing. Just as when good, when spirit-empowered, biblically faithful, Christ-exalting biblical ministry is taking place to fulfill the Great Commission to be faithful to the Word of God, to be empowered by the Spirit of God, to the exalting, exalting Christ with God-glorifying, Bible-saturated, gospel-driven, spirit-filled, pre, uh, preaching, teaching, Christian living, discipleship, uh, worship. When that is all taking place, it is constructive. It is creative. It is growing up things in the Lord and for the Lord. It's seen spiritual growth and functional growth and statistical growth. But not so, false teaching. It's parasitic. Now, what do I mean by parasitic? Parasitic, a parasite lives off of its host, off of its host, and it can only live as long as the host lives. But it's not giving to the host, it's taking away from the host. It is drawing the nutrients out of the host, and it is deconstructing its host. And it is diminishing the beauty and the vitality and the ability and the power of the host as it lives off of the host. Progressive, contemporary progressive Christianity, as its cousin, liberal Christianity, I say that because it's cut from the same bolt of cloth, the same fabric, it has the same motivation, listen to us, we're going to make the church culturally relevant. That's what they did with liberal Christianity to mainline Protestant churches, and now, that was last century, now in this century, the uh, progressive Christianity says, if you don't listen to us, you're going to lose the next generation. If you don't listen to us, you're going to be on the dustbin of history. The same slogans. It has the same motivation as liberal Christianity to make the church culturally relevant. And it has a mission. Just like liberal Christianity told the Protestant mainline church, you are going, your mission is to transform the culture, cultural transformation which truly is a blessed effect of ministry, but it's not the mission of ministry. And then what, does, what is progressive Christianity now saying? And of course, the, it's interesting that the, that the mainline Protestant church that listened to liberal Christianity to be culturally relevant, to be the power player in the culture, uh, is now actually on the dustbin of history. 
the liberal Christianity has just parasitically sucked all the life out of it. And now the same thing is happening to the evangelical church in this century. As, uh, as contemporary progressive Christianity says, well, we're going to make you culturally relevant. And that means your job is the flourishing of the culture. The cultural transformation is not a byproduct of your ministry. It is the mission of your ministry. And therefore, you now are set about for the transformation of culture, not the transformation of sinners. That's great if that happens. But what you do is you're aiming and your mission is the transformation of culture. Well, what happens is such churches in progressive Christianity, such movements, whether it's an institution like a seminary or a college or whether it's a church or a denomination, they never start anything. They are never creating. They always come in, insinuate their theology, their philosophy, and their ministry parameters, and then they begin to draw the life out of its host. The seminary begins in its demise. The college begins in its demise. The church, the denomination, begins in its demise. Why? Because false teaching and false leaders are parasitic. They live off of what was done faithfully for the Lord, and they're drawing out of it. Their life is based upon its life. I say, Pastor, I know some progressive guys that have gone out and planted churches. Oh, I do too. I know our national missions ministry as diligent as they are, as prayerful as they are, people know what to say. And then we find out they're using the money of this congregation and the resources of this congregation to plant a progressive church that goes into a demise. Our progressive Christian leaders come into a church through the pastoral leadership that develops in within the session. And what happens? Faithful elders are moved out. Faithful preaching is abandoned. Biblical preaching is abandoned. The Great Commission takes a back seat. And then all of a sudden, what you have is a deconstruction of the church. And that means a diminishing of the church spiritually, functionally, and statistically. That's what begins to happen. Now, I could support that anecdotally. I just know that that's what happens because God's word is clear. If you are unfaithful and you don't repent, I'll remove the lampstand. He says that to a number of the churches in the presbytery of churches, the seven churches in the book of Revelation. Do you know the two hot spots for Christianity in the opening years of, the, of Christianity? The two hot spots. One, northern Egypt specifically Alexandria, the greatest Christian library that's ever existed, right there, Alexandria. But before that was Asia Minor. Most of, not most, I'm overstating it, but a lot of the books in your New Testament are written to Asia Minor. Galatians, Ephesians, Revelation. That book after book, Philemon, Colossians, Book after book were written into there because there, in Paul's second and third missionary journey and possibly one of Peter's journeys, there was a hot spot of Christianity. And at the end of the century, a letter is written to the current overseer of ministry. His name is John. And, he, and, and Jesus is warning them, I'm taking the lampstand out if you don't repent. One of those churches I want you to look at with me. Look at Thyatira in, Ro in Revelation chapter 2. And look with me in verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write this. The words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like, are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and your faith and your servant and patient endurance. And that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you. What? False teaching, false leaders. You tolerate that woman 
Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, I don't have time to develop the whole text, but let me tell you what he's saying. There's false teaching that is accommodating sexual sins. And there is false teaching accommodating sexual sins and promoting false worship. Instead of God-centered worship, it's man-centered worship that is even embracing the resources of idolatry. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will, sh- I will throw her into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I'll give to each one of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold the teaching, who have not learned from what... Uh, from what uh, from what some call, now here's something, there's always this Gnosticism, those who are really in the know. And progressive Christianity is always, well, you need to sit back and listen because these people are really in the know. Just be silent. Don't bring your Bible verses. Just be silent and listen. We are in the know, and you need to listen to us. And so to you, who have learned, um, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you, I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Faithfulness to Christ, his word by the Spirit of God, is the aim of historic biblical Christianity. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father, and I'll give him the morning star who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Folks, this, the very mother church, Ephesus, was told that if you don't repent, I'm going to remove the lampstand. The hotbed of Christianity in the first century and the second century, Asia Minor. Today, is a place of spiritual darkness. The Christian church, praise God, is experiencing some revival now, but for hundreds and hundreds of years, no lampstand, none there. God's people need to be on the alert. God's people need to test the preaching of God's Word. Is it faithful to the Word of God? The preaching, the pastoral preaching of God's Word, the servant leadership of God's ordained officers, elders and deacons, the very commitment of the ministry to Christ. None of churches are perfect by any means. You can see the graciousness with which how the Lord is dealing with His church and His patience with them. But He warns us, do not tolerate that which will destroy, that which was parasitic, deconstructive, and diminishes. That has to be removed. We have to repent. If not, then the Lord removes the lampstand. Well, as I've looked through what progressive Christianity brings, I've done the deep dive on it. Here are seven marks, and all of these deserve much more treatment than I can give you. Uh, Give it that I have time to give to you, but I will give you what I can give to you and get the seven marks in front of you. What, how can you identify progressive Christianity when it lays hold of the church? Remember those two words, deconstruction and diminishing. Number one, there is the deconstruction and diminishing of the church's view of the supremacy of Scripture. There is, over a period of time, a deconstruction and diminishing of the church's and the leadership's view of the supremacy of Scripture. This morning I shared with you, this is a crucial element in anticipation of tonight. And uh, as I shared it with you, I did so in the reference to the Reformation. In the Reformation, what was the supreme authority for what we believe and practice? Well, when the Reformation came in in the present church, the Roman church at that time, magisterium was found in the tradition of the church presented through clerical authority. 
the traditions of the church, the church speaking, it was supposedly a twofold authority, the Bible and the speaking church. Well, you never, there's never two masters. One always outshines the other. And therefore, the functional authority in the Roman church was the supremacy of the councils of the church speaking through the councils and clerics of the church. It was the magisterium of the church. And the Reformation starts off addressing the issue of how can a man be right with God, the doctrine of justification that we looked at this morning from Romans chapter 3. But by the time, within two and a half years, by the time um, the church brings uh, Martin Luther to bay and he has to come and defend himself at the Diet of Worms, as he arrives at the Diet of Worms to defend himself, it becomes abundantly clear the reason he's holding to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is because of sola scriptura. The scripture alone is our rule of faith and practice. So how does he end that moment of defending his position? He ends it this way, unless I am convinced by reason or scripture, here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. It is the supremacy of Scripture. But whenever a church is motivated for cultural relevance, its mission is cultural transformation, then its message will begin to be massaged and controlled by the culture out of the desire for cultural acceptance. Then the message is marked by cultural accommodation and biblical magisterium out of the sovereignty of the supremacy of Scripture. That's the first mark, is the deconstruction and diminishing of the supremacy of Scripture. I might have said sufficiency earlier. I'm sorry. I got mixed up on my notes here. It is the supremacy of Scripture. It is the loss of sola scriptura. It is the abandonment of biblical magisterium for cultural magisterium. Just listen how the pulpit begins to be silent about the issues of the day that the Bible speaks to as you preach and teach the whole counsel of God, but the pulpit quits speaking to it because the culture says, don't speak to it. So many times in progressive cultures, you'll see the the pulpits rightly speaking to the issues of racism, issues of justice, issues of things like sex trafficking. Praise God. Preach the law of God and the power of the gospel of God to confront those issues, calling men and women to repentance and equipping God's people to be salt and light. Praise God. But have you noticed in those same pulpits there is a silence now on gender, marriage, biblical sexuality, as a gift from God to be exercised within a covenantal, heterosexual, monogamous marriage. All of a sudden, there is a silence on the sanctity of life. Why? Because the culture says, don't speak. Well, we want to be relevant. We want a seat at the table because we want to be culture shapers. But what's really happening with cultural magisterium is you're not transforming the culture. It's transforming your church. That's really what's happening. And so the supremacy, there is the deconstruction and there is the diminishing of the supremacy of Scripture. And what begins to happen is instead of sola scriptura is sola cultural. And one of the ways it's furthered, keep your eye out for this. This is a constant slogan out of progressive Christianity. Churches need to quit talking so much about what you believe. It's more important to belong. That just people need to belong, and then we'll take care of their believing. There's only one problem. The Bible says what? You're saved by what? Faith. In who? Jesus. 
And you can't be saved by faith in Jesus and walk by faith for Jesus with the people of God until you believe in Jesus. And faith comes by what? Hearing the word of Christ. Believing leads to belonging. Now, if people haven't believed, that doesn't mean they're not loved. Absolutely loved. We have friendships that extend outside of the body of Christ into the world. We create relationships. We don't build walls. We build open doors. We build gates. We build all of those things. But we don't church. We bring Christ. And when they came to Christ and baptized in Christ, they were added to the church. That is, you have to know Christ to be a part of Christ's church. That means that we have to reject, re, re, we have to reject, we have to reject a progressive Christianity's setting up in conflict. It's a false dichotomy, believing and belonging. It's reaching, believing and belonging. It's seeking them that they may believe and belong to Christ and then add it to his church. The church can't save them. That's not your objective to be churched. The objective is to come to Christ and to bring Christ to them. That's the objective. To be churched is the testimony of belonging to Christ. They were baptized, they and their household, and added into the body of Christ. Does that mean we wait to love people when they join the church? No, we love people and we go to the highways and byways and love people and bring Christ to them. Well, let me, as I said, each one of these deserve their own sermon, so I've got to stop just out of some form of some type of discipline here. Let me take you to number two, which I've already mentioned. When you lose the supremacy of Scripture, you lose the, you, you have the deconstruction and diminishing of the sufficiency of Scripture, that God's Word is enough. You see what happens when the church, when, when your motivation is cultural relevance and your mission is cultural transformation, then for cultural acceptance, there is cultural accommodation in the issues and in the words that you preach. Well, that means you've got to massage the message, which is the gospel proclamation of the whole counsel of God. But all of a sudden, we're not preaching the whole counsel of God, nor do we think that the Word of God is sufficient in progressive Christianity. Now, remember, liberal Christianity had the same thing. Liberal Christianity says we want to be relevant to the culture. We want to transform the culture. We're going to bring in the Christian century. They even did a magazine for that. And then and we're going to save the mainline Protestant church from the dustbin of history. And then they began to have the seat at the table for the culture players, they begin to do what? We've got to get rid of some of these doctrines that they don't, the modern mind won't accept. The inerrancy of God's word, the, um, the supernatural dynamics of the virgin birth, the, third, the resurrection, the exclusivity of Christ in salvation, the need of a vicarious atonement. Those things are not acceptable to the modern mind. So we need to jettison those. That was liberal theology that came out of liberal Christianity. Christianity. Well, progressive Christianity does the same thing. Out of a motivation to be culturally relevant, it tells the evangelical church, because the Protestant church is on the dustbin of history, it tells the evangelical church, you have got to, your new mission, the, uh, the, the rising generations are not going to listen to you unless you are culturally attuned. And therefore, you have got to be committed to the culture, the transformation of the culture and the issues the culture brings to you and the concerns the culture brings to you. Well, Jesus tells us it's not cultural transformation, it's center transformation. Cultural transformation is a byproduct. So what does progressive Christianity do? Progressive Christianity produces a progressive theology that doesn't go after the inerrancy of the Scripture. It goes after the sufficiency of the Scripture. It goes after the sufficiency of the Scripture. And the, and the way you see it is people 
who begin to say things like the Bible is inerrant and sufficient and supreme and sovereign, and people begin to be challenged in their theology from the Word of God. And I'm not talking about picking at tertiary doctrines. I'm talking about dealing with things like what does the gospel say about forgiveness of sins and transformation of sinners? And what does the gospel say about how to deal with besetting sins? As you begin to do that, you begin to raise the flag of the sufficiency of the the supremacy of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture, the sufficiency of the gospel, and the sufficiency of Christ, as you begin to raise that, all of a sudden you hear the epithets, the same ones that were hurled against the believing church in the days of liberal Christianity, legalist, fundamentalist, hard right, the epithets to silence, the voice calling for faithfulness, to the supremacy and the sufficiency of the Word of God. And what do the pulpits begin to be committed to? Well, all of a sudden, from the pulpits is no longer the exposition of Scripture. There may be the proof texting of Scripture, but not the exposition of Scripture. And there's the functional canonization of extra-biblical publications that are political, that are sociological, that are psychological. And then when you say, no, wait, 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 where did, where did you come from? Where's that critical theory thing? Or where does that revoice and side B what, side A what? And you begin to, and all of these things that come out of psychological, psychological categories, sociological terminology, and political motivations, and all of those things that, these literature that's coming, you say, no, wait, 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 wait. Harry, don't you believe in common grace? Yes. So don't you believe that even unbelievers can have truth every once in a while because of God's common grace. Broken clocks right twice a day, right? So why don't you eat the meat and spit out the bones? But here's the problem. This literature isn't isn't produced by common grace. This literature is produced as a statement against the truths of God's grace. It is designed to tear down a natural family. It is designed to tear down the church. It is designed to tear down the gospel. It is rooted in that. This isn't a hungry man with a bony fish chew the meat and spit out the bones. This is a thirsty man in a raft on the ocean looking at the seawater and thinking, oh, I can drink that and spit out the salt. No, you drink that, you die. And therefore, the pulpits get adulterated. And the next step is apostasy. And the next step is heresy. And I don't use that word lightly. And with the way I was trained, heresy is not theological error. You can have theological error. All of you've got theological error. Yes, I've got theological error. That's why you test me by the Bible. And I won't call you a fundamentalist when you do. Because I believe in the supremacy and the sovereignty and the sufficiency of Scripture. But the fact is, is as you deal with the Word of God, and as we deal with the Word of God, if we begin to canonize those things that are up, written against the Bible against the biblical understanding of gender, natural family, sexuality, and, and written against the claims and promises of the gospel, as those things are brought in, then what you have is doctrinal adulteration first and then apostasy because you begin to embrace heresy. What is heresy? It's not simply theological error. You got the millennium wrong. You got church government wrong. Those are secondary doctrines. You can get that wrong, get to heaven. But heresy is when you knowingly are communicating and believing biblical uh, doctrines that are heretical, that are false, and these doctrines are first-order issues. You get them wrong, and you spend eternity in hell. That's what heresy is. Soul-damning doctrines. And they come out of a loss of the supremacy of Scripture, its deconstruction and diminishment, and then 
the deconstruction and diminishment of the sufficiency of Scripture. Number three, I got to go quicker. Here I go. There is the diminishing, the deconstruction and diminishing of the gospel promises, the integrity of the gospel. All of a sudden, we're told there are sexual sins that are so powerful and so besetting that you can get forgiven, but you can't get liberated. You can get forgiven. You can get, now watch, now listen to me. The gospel blessings, declarative blessings of justification and adoption, you can become a part of the family of God and be forgiven, but the gospel promises of regeneration that breaks the power of sin and the gospel blessings of sanctification that you can make progress in Christ. Now, there's your only good word for progress tonight. The pilgrim's progress in Christ by the power of the Spirit through the Word of God. But all of a sudden, what you just sang, they say is no. The gospel is prevailing to declare you just and adopt you, but the gospel cannot be prevailing over some sins. Recently, I read one individual that said, well, I've been a Christian now for 30 plus years. I'm forgiven. I'm a child of God. I'm justified. But my desire, my erotic desire for same sex, my erotic same sex desires has not changed at all over 30 years. If someone comes to me with that, my heart breaks. I sit down because I know if what they're saying is accurate, there's one of three things. Number one, they're not saved. Number two, number two, they are saved, but they don't know how to measure the progress and give glory to God. They think they're managing sin. They are and need to be killing it. And they're not able to see the progress and that it's of the Lord. And I want to help them see it and give glory to God. And don't bring suspicion upon the promises of regeneration and sanctification. And thirdly, or thirdly, they just haven't been put under godly biblical discipleship. I'm not talking about the old exodus Uh, the psychology behavior modification mess that they did 20, 30 years ago. I'm talking about biblical discipleship. Biblical discipleship that immerses someone in the means of grace. And you've got that one, that the means of grace and the word of God. Don't don't you love the way it says to us in in Psalm 1? um, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, does not stand in the seat of the, does not uh, sit in the, I'm sorry, does not stand in the path of the sinner, does not sit in the seat of the scoffer, but in his law, he delights day and night, and and that in the law of the Lord, he meditates day and night, and his delight is in the law of the Lord, and he will be like a tree. Well, let me tell you what it means to be like a tree planted by streams of living water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. How does that happen? It happens from cutting out the sap that brings the sin out, and it is immersing yourself in the new sap that pushes up, right? In other words, you put off and you put on. I I gave you the illustration. I got two trees in my backyard. In the fall, the sap stops rising, and the leaves fall off. That's what happens in sanctification. You don't feed it. You do not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. You do not sit in the path that stand the path of the center. You don't sit in the seat of the scorner. But I got another tree in the backyard. The leaves stay on all winter, and they don't leave until the new sap comes up and brings the new fruit that drives it out. In his law, he meditates day and night, and he'll be like a tree firmly planted. We need to pull off, cut, cut off the old, and pull off the old, and we need to, by God's grace and sanctification, put in the new to push out the sin in our life. So if someone tells me that, I, I never doubt the promises of God. 
I believe that when God causes you to be born again, you still have sin living in you, but you do not live under the power of sin. You can say no. You can grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. And I believe that sancti- I believe while everything else in the gospel is monergistic, God does it all. God calls you. God justifies you. God uh, regenerates you. God adopts you, and one day God will glorify you. In sanctification, it's synergistic. It's 100% God and 100% you, and the church that believes the gospel takes, uh, takes people and helps them with besetting sins, and let's go ahead and immerse ourselves in the Word and in the Spirit to drive out sin, cut off that which feeds sin, build up that which feeds the new man, and, and, then, and then cut off that which the old man would feast on. That's what we need to help you do. The gospel is true. Now let's apply it faithfully, persistently. And he never tells you perfection is on this side, but he does tell you such were some of you. But you've been born again. But you've been washed with the blood. But you've been sanctified. And we believe that, and we believe that, and we do not diminish the gospel by anecdotal statistics. What we do is apply the gospel with confidence because we believe that God cannot lie. And if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. But how do they get around that? They've got another little slogan. We've got to quit curing people and start caring for people. Why is that a dichotomy? The gospel forgives, changes, and transforms. And we care for you enough to tell you that, and we care enough to help you walk through it. That's what we're here to do with you. That's what God's called us to do with you. Well, number four, number four, there is the diminish, the, the deconstruction and diminishment of the primacy of preaching. Less and less will you find in progressive pulpits a commitment to expository preaching. There'll be talks. There'll be references to the Bible as a jumping off point for the talk that we give that usually comes from extra biblical literature that we have effectively canonized. You know, when the Reformation came, there's two types of architecture in Christianity, the facility and the liturgy. And when the Reformation came, they looked at the facilities and they said, get that pulpit off the side wall and put it right in the middle and elevate it. It's through the foolishness of the message preached that we are being saved. And that sacramental table that's elevated, bring it down on the floor of the people underneath the pulpit because it's the pulpit that brings integrity to it because they've got to come by faith and faith comes from hearing the word. And so the architecture changed to reflect the theology of the supremacy of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture, and the integrity of the gospel. And God has ordained through the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. And then they did the architecture of the liturgy of worship. And every element of worship had to come from the Bible. And the central primary act was the preaching of the Word of God. But in the progressive church, ritual begins to replace the preaching. Sacramentalism comes back in and ritual. Oh, I love the Lord's Supper and I love baptism, but they are meaningless without the Word of God preached. Faithful. That's why Paul said, I didn't come to baptize. I came to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Expository preaching with authoritative declarations, not because the preacher is authoritarian, but because the word has authority. In the place are vague references, discussions, talks. And have you considered, instead of Thus saith the Lord. 
Number five, the diminishment, the deconstruction and diminishment of biblical ministries. Discipleship is gone. Now, instead of discipling people to mortify sin and vivify obedience, there's now manage the syndrome in your life. Manage your sin. The Bible says through discipleship, we are to kill sin for Jesus, and we are to live unto Jesus. Not because what we do saves us, but because we love our Savior. There's the diminishment not only of the ministry of discipleship, but the ministry of worship. You'll find one of two things in progressive churches. Either worship becomes a concert of entertainment, or it becomes a liturgical heavy sacramentalism that begins to take place. Personal evangelism is lost. It's get people to church. Now, listen to me. I beg you, bring people whom you're sharing the gospel with to church. I beg you. I promise you, if I have to slit my neck, I'll bleed out the gospel to them if you'll bring them here, okay? I promise you that. But the real work of evangelism is not done on Sunday morning. The real work of evangelism is done Monday through Saturday, when you personally share with others. And I had one of the most important sermons of my life this Sunday morning from one of the greatest texts of the Bible. And I was amazed in the providence of God. God was working on my heart because my Facebook and my email and everything gets inundated with almost anything and everything that would distract me from that text and that preaching that Lord's Day. And I know that's what Satan wants to do. But I will tell you this. You can fill up my email and my social media with, Pastor, I was sharing the gospel with somebody and they said this, can you help me? Pastor so-and-so I talked with, and I think they're going to make, I'm going to be talking with them about their decision to Christ. Would you pray for that? Boy, I would love to see our social media filled up with the reports of God's people scattering to the highways and the byways, seeking to save the lost. In a progressive church, no, no, it's the next cause. It's the next community action. No longer are preachers ministers of the gospel. They become community organizers. The ordained offices, we lose. Oh, how I thank God for our elders. We lose leaders that are committed to both pastoral care and theological fidelity. And instead, it's events. Instead, it's social engagements, a social gospel in the name of social justice instead of a biblical gospel that produces biblical justice. Roles are lost and the dynamics are lost. Well, let me give you the last two. I'll just mention them to you and we'll close in prayer. There is the deconstruction and diminishment of biblical contextualization. We are, in, we are not allowed to retreat from the world. In other words, let me assure you, as long as you ask me to serve you under the authority of these elders, I will never bring a proposal that Briarwood sell everything and go buy a hundred acres and start a commune. We are not. That's not separation. That's not biblical separation. We're to be in the world, but not of the world. So we are to assemble, we are to contextualize in the world, but we're not to let the world contextualize us. That means we speak to the culture and its people in the terms they can understand, not the terms they demand. We speak to the culture and its people. This is biblical contextualization. In the world, but not of the world. Think of a, think of a boat in a lake. If the boat, if to save the boat, you take it out of the lake and put it up on the dry dock, well, you'll save the boat, but it's useless. What good is a boat that's hanging up in a garage? But if you don't take care of them and you put it in the water... 
and it springs a leak and you don't repair the leak, well, what good is a boat that fills up, that fills up with the water and is at the bottom of the lake? You see, when you get contextualized by the world, the world gets in the church and sinks us. We want to be in the lake, not the lake in us. In the world, but not of the world. Therefore, we speak in the terms the world can understand and the people, but not on the terms that they demand. It brought the cultural accommodation in the name of contextualization and the loss of a biblical understanding of contextualization brought the demise of the mainline church. It's now just a piece of the furniture if it exists at all as long as the endowments last. Evangelical churches headed the same way unless we understand that we are in the world but not of the world and the world does not determine our motivation, our mission, or our message. Jesus does. And then seventhly and finally is the deconstruction and diminishment of Christ's church. Boy, there's so much I wanted to say about this. I go into progressive churches, and I've had to now for the last three years. There's no joy. Christ's church, I watch them speak of Christ's church and its failures. Listen, I know the church isn't perfect, and we need to repent. But I go into these churches, there's no joy. And I hear men in the pulpit speaking about Christ's church, his bride, in ways they would never let someone speak about their own bride. There's no reverence. There's no honor. I know the church needs help. That's why God's got the leadership here, to wash the bride with the water of the word. I understand that. But we do not diminish her. We do not demean her. We do not deconstruct her. This church doesn't exist to give me a job. This is Christ's church. We're all here to do a job. It belong, this church belongs to him. It's the bride of Christ. And we have a mission from Christ, a message from Christ. And we have the ministries. We'll talk about those next. But he's given us all of that to be faithful to. And to give ourselves a platform by demeaning Christ's church and robbing people of joy. I go into, there was a church recently. I was there to preach. It had 500 people. I went to preach. The church was full of the joy of the Lord. And then I came back four years later under a progressive pastor. It's now diminished statistically from five to 100. People are out wondering, no flock, no this, no that. I mean, it's not like the blessings we have in Birmingham. My goodness, there's 16 PCA churches within 10 miles of here and great Southern Baptist churches. But this church, this was desperate need for it. And he came in and deconstructed and diminished it. And when I stepped in, I'd never seen such cynical and joyless people. So don't let the world get your heart strings. Get in the Word of God. Get your eyes fixed on Jesus. Spend time in prayer. Go pick one news station. But know the good news. And be filled with the joy of the Lord. The joy of Christ. The joy of your salvation. And let's make sure Christ's church, whom we love, the bride of Christ, is on mission, on message, in ministry. Lord, mend our flaws. Give us repentance. But let us rejoice, your church, your bride, your lampstand, keep it burning, burning, burning till the break of day. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the moments we could be together. Thank you for the Lord Jesus, the King and head of his church. Thank you for God, for these people and their love for you as they process this uh, Lord, help them as they work their way through it. Help us even as we perhaps can revisit this in our last sermon some. But uh, God, please help us understand what is happening so that we can help our brothers and sisters in such churches 
God, give us seminaries producing pastors who are ministers of the gospel of grace, who believe in the supremacy of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture, the integrity of the gospel, who believe that the discipleship of the church can be effective to the glory of God. And he can not only justify and adopt, he can transform and make us new creations and grow us in grace all the way to glory with varying degrees of progress until we get there. Father, help us to, to love Christ's church even as you loved your bride and gave yourself for her. Help us say no to that which is parasitic, deconstructs, and diminishes. And yes, to that whereby we walk in the confidence of the Spirit of God, not triumphalism, but the triumph of Christ. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reeder, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.